This is Maine Coast Doc Talk, a podcast bringing you the latest news and stories from Maine's working waterfronts. This podcast is brought to you by the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association. I'm your host, Ben Martens. Welcome to Maine Coast Doc Talk. I'm here with Patrice McCarran, who is the executive director of the Maine Lobstermen's Association. And this is the second time we've had Patrice on Doc Talk to talk about lobsters and whales. And there's been a lot of movements. This is one of the top conversations on the working waterfront in Maine. And so we wanted to invite Patrice back to give us an update on what's happening. There's several lawsuits that have been settled and filed and that are moving around in the broader world. There's a take reduction team process that is ongoing as well for future regulations. And then we have a lot of other pieces that are happening closer to home when it comes to investing in technology and research, money to help fishermen convert gear, et cetera. So Patrice, there's a lot on the table, but the place I want to start is give us an update on the recent stuff that have come out of the courts over the past few weeks. The first one is the, the Maine Lobstermen's Union lawsuit. What happened with, with that? Sure. The Maine Lobstering Unions filed in federal court, federal court in Bangor, Maine. And their complaint is that the seasonal closure in the offshore waters of Maine that prohibit lobstermen from fishing there from October through January is illegal. They're claiming that the federal agency did not use the best available science to justify that closure. That case went before Judge Walker, and they asked for a preliminary injunction last fall to prevent the federal government from implementing that seasonal closure. And they were successful with that. Judge Walker said, you know what? We don't have enough information. We're going to leave that open until we decide the legality of the closure. Well, National Marine Fisheries Service appealed Judge Walker's decision. And so the case was sent to the First Circuit Court of Appeals in Boston, Mass. And because of the sensitive nature time-wise of that issue, the closure was supposed to go into effect on October 1st. That closure was delayed. The First Circuit issued a preliminary ruling saying that Judge Walker got it wrong. And that in fact, the closure should go ahead while the case is decided. They issued that as a preliminary ruling because they didn't feel that they had adequate time to fully vet all of the facts of the case. And they also wanted an opportunity to hear from all of the lawyers to make sure that they were truly understanding what was going on. So that happened this spring. And earlier this week, the First Circuit actually issued their final decision. And it was very much in line with their preliminary decision. And it also went so far as to say, from their perspective, the lobster management area one seasonal closure is legal and should be in place. So for the time being, nothing's changed for Maine lobstermen. That closure will go on the books again in October. The case has now gone back to Judge Walker in Bangor, Maine, and he will hear briefs on the case and ultimately decide, is this closure legal or not? So for now, Closure remains in place. The ultimate question of whether or not the closure will stand or not stand has not been answered, but based on a pretty scathing order from the First Circuit of Appeals, it looks unlikely that the closure would be overturned at this point, but we will have to wait and see. And that closure was, uh, it's about a thousand square miles off of Maine's coast that is closed for a chunk of the late fall, early winter fishing season. Yeah, it spans the lengths of zones C, D, and E. It's about 10 miles inshore to offshore, and it's right along the Area 1, Area 3 boundary. So it's about, you know, 100 miles by 10 miles, and it is 
very, very important prime fishing bottom for hundreds of lobstermen who make their living there during the winter months. So it's it's definitely a management measure that has significant economic impact for the fishermen who rely on that area. So it's a big hit for us. Yeah. And and just really bluntly, fishermen that fish in that area should be prepared that for for that staying shut down for the foreseeable future for for the the time period that that NOAA put it in place for. So Absolutely. They should be assessing their fishing strategy as if that bottom's not available to them, (laughs) working with fishermen who they're going to have to come in and set their gear around. Last year was particularly difficult because they did keep their gear in that closed area and the federal government gave them two weeks to move it out. And because the closure was delayed as a result of the court case, you know, weather was rough, seas were rough. It was a tall order to then take that gear up and move it. So enforce them, gave them a little bit of wiggle room, just sort of understanding some of the safety issues that they were contending. And I will say that from the enforcement perspective, what I've heard is that compliance was excellent. People did remove their gear and it, it certainly made for a hard winter for a lot of people. Sure. And now just for a reminder for me, one of the, one of the tools that is being talked about as a, you know, being pushed by the environmental community is being tested along the coast is the ropeless gear. Is the ropeless gear allowed inside that area? So is that a, an incentive for fishermen to try that? Or is that, is it going to be close to all types of, of lobster and, and, and fishing in that area? That's a yes and no answer. So on paper, the only way you could fish lobster gear in that area would be without rope. But you can't just go and do that. You would have to apply through the federal government for an exempted fishing permit, which would allow you to not have your traditional buoy lines. And then in addition to that, you would have to also apply through the state of Maine, if you're a Maine lobsterman, or state of Massachusetts, if you're a Massachusetts lobsterman, and so on for a special permit from the state to actually land that product. So that's been an area of huge controversy with the fishermen. There are some research projects ongoing at the federal level where they are in fact trying to incentivize helping fishermen get an exempted fishing permit, get them into those areas without rope. From the Maine Lobstermen's Association perspective, we feel like this is kind of an all or nothing scenario. If you're dislocating upwards to 150 people, then you can't allow a handful of them, you know, they only have enough gear to outfit 30 boats at a time. You can't allow those people in while everybody else is sidelined. They're landing lobsters. They're making money for fishing the gear on top of it while everybody else is on the side. So, you know, in terms of, <clears throat> in terms of testing ropeless fishing, we'd really like to see that done in within the commercial fishery itself along ground fish boats and scallop boats and other lobster gear so that we can really see if that gear is going to be a viable solution for our fishery. So short answer is guys cannot just chop off their ropes and go in there. No. No. And I, I asked that question pointedly because we have been approached, I'm sure you have as well to just say, Hey, here's some money, go buy some ropeless gear and let guys go try it. And it's, it's not as simple of a solution as that. Like we we've engaged in EFP projects in the past and it's, it can be heavy lifts to make sure that you're doing everything correctly. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons why I bring it up is just that there is a process around the testing of new gear that needs to be respected and, and understood as well for, for those that are kind of staring at this from the outside and saying, well, why aren't they just doing this? It's, it's not just easy to just say, cool, we're going to flip, flip the switch and, and go try this stuff and see if it works or not. Right. And it is dual jurisdiction. So double hurdles, you have to get through both the federal process and the state process to be able to gain access and, and use that gear. So 
Great. Thank you. That really helps clarify where what's happening with that closed area and the, the lawsuit that the union brought. The second court case is the, the ENGO case. There was a finding on that from July 8th. What was that case about and what, what were the findings? So much like the Maine Lobster Union case, it's kind of a long story. There's a little bit of history behind it, which is important to understand. So that case is spearheaded by the Center for Biological Diversity. It's now referred to as CBD versus Raimondo, so the Secretary of Commerce. They had originally filed that case in 2018. And they, you know, had several complaints, but ultimately were challenging the legality of the 2014 biological opinion and the incidental take statement in that. And it's important to understand that if your fishery interacts with protected marine mammals or endangered species, you do need to have this biological opinion in place. It needs to be legal and there does need to be an incidental take statement as part of that. In 2020, the judge from the U.S. District Court, Washington, D.C., ruled that the 2014 biological opinion was, in fact, illegal. It was invalid. Instead of closing the fishery, which the judge would be able to do, he gave National Marine Fisheries more time to do a new biological opinion, and he ordered for that to be in place by May of 2021, and also requested that the new set of whale rules come out. And NIMS did do both of those things. They were both put in place. Shortly after that, the environmental groups who were the litigants, um, they re-amended their case and said, we don't think that this new biological opinion that you just published in 2021 goes far enough. We think it too is illegal for many of the same reasons they claimed in the first round. And they also claimed that the new whale rule was also illegal. And so the judge said, A-OK, you can amend your complaint. Maine Lobstermen's Association has been an intervener in that case since 2018. We've been there the whole time. The state of Maine more recently became an intervener. And then Massachusetts Lobstermen's Association and the Maine Lobstermen Union are all part of that case. And it's important for all of these groups to be interveners because you have full status in the case to brief the judge on your perspective for the issues to be argued. So with something like this, where the actual operation of the fishery, the legality of National Marine Fishery Service being able to actually license fishermen to go, there's a lot at stake because we feel like we're constantly sort of standing at the edge of the cliff wondering whether or not the fishery will be able to legally authorize, be authorized. And I will say that that is not the fault of fishermen. It is not the fault of lobstermen at all. It's the fault of very, very, very strict legal standards through the dual combination of Marine Mammal Protection Act and the Endangered Species Act in combination. It's it's very difficult to comply with. And then National Marine Fisheries Service not doing their job in meeting those standards. And, you know, sort of as we segue into MLA's case, you know, really misusing the science available to them, misinterpreting a lot of the assumptions and getting the goalposts for these fisheries set in the wrong place, which makes it nearly impossible under the standards in the CBD case before the judge for NIMS to be complying with the law. So it's a scary situation. You know, in the case now, the judge has ruled that both the 2021 buy-off is illegal, the 2021 final rule is illegal, which is not good news for the fishing industry, but there was some glimmer of hope. The judge did say point blank, he realizes this is a huge blow for the fishery, acknowledged that this must be a lot for us to try to digest and understand. He said that he is not going to shutter the fishery immediately. Instead, he said, you know, it's possible that the risk is lower now than NIMS had originally thought. 
He said it's possible that NIMS has mitigation measures on hand now that they didn't have originally. And he wants to be fully briefed from all of the parties. So that would include all of the interveners as well as the plaintiff, the ENGOs, the defendant, National Marine Fisheries Service. And here what we have to say, we think should be done in order to bring the fishery back into compliance with the law. So, you know, having having these two big regulatory actions be illegal is, it's a precarious place to be for sure. But having a judge who understands the economic blow that's going to give to the industry and to be willing to hear from all parties and allow the fishery to operate in the interim is very, very positive. So we are definitely gearing up and getting ready to engage in that next that next phase of the case. And we expect that that will play out sometime over the summer and hopefully by the fall, we'll have a better idea of, of precisely what that is going to mean for our fishermen. And just to, to really emphasize that point, because you said it, but it, it, it needs to be said again, is this judge could have shut down the fishery, right? And, and that's one of the pieces that is always very scary for the fishing community is you know, at any point in time, the hammer could come down and it's, it's, it's frightening to think about your community, your business, your family, and the relationship that in reliance of, of good decision-making that, that could potentially really impact our entire coast of Maine and, and the structure of our coastal communities in such a profound way. And I, and I know that that causes a lot of anxiety every time we're getting close to one of these findings coming out. You know, I start getting a lot more phone calls of like, what do you think is going to happen? What do you, what, what's going to happen over, right? You know, I'm sure that your phone is nonstop, but it, there, there is a, a bit of, there's a lot of anxiety and fear around every one of these decisions. And every time there's a new announcement, I, I know that that starts to start to peak. So Yeah. And I think a lot of fishermen have wondered over the years, you know, why is the industry suing? Why aren't we doing this? You know, the courts are a venue of last resort. It's extremely expensive to move through the courts and you give up a lot of control. The management processes that we have are they're frustrating. They can feel irrational. You know, you have to work with stakeholders. It's very, very hard work but you are guaranteed a voice in the outcome. And so MLA has been steadfast in participating in the take reduction team process and all of the federal rulemakings. And it's only because the environmental community continues to sue and put us in this vulnerable spot with the judge that we've entered these court cases as interveners. And then ultimately, when you're in a situation where you say, all right, the judge has to make a very difficult situation, the best available data is considered what the federal government's put forward. If you don't agree with that, you know, you, you can't argue that in the environmentalist case because that's not that's not the basis of their of their lawsuit. And that's what prompted MLA to say, you know, we really need to file our own lawsuit, something that tells the story from our perspective and tries to address the major deficiencies that we see have have, you know, come to be through this federal process. So it's it is a it, it's a scary place for sure. That's yeah, I, I appreciate that. And I appreciate all the hard work that the MLA is doing and the state of Maine is doing to engage in these very difficult conversations. Are you able to give us any updates on on where things stand with the MLA lawsuit at, to, to that end? What were you know, last time we talked, I think you had just been filing that. So where do we stand? What's happening? Yeah, so Maine Lobstermen's Association filed our lawsuit against National Marine Fisheries Service in September of 2021. Our court case is based on our concern that the science, the way NIMS has used the data available to the agency as the basis to set the goalposts for the types of reductions we're being asked to have is flawed. 
That has moved through the court, all of the parties in the case. So we've got National Marine Fisheries Service is the defendant, MLA is the plaintiff, and then we have the Lobstering Union, Mass Lobstermen's Association of the state of Maine as interveners on our side, and the environmental groups in this case are interveners on NIMS's side, so sort of a flip-flop of the ENGO case. Everything has been fully briefed, so you file your complaint, you file a motion for summary judgment where you really lay things out, the opposite party has a chance to respond, and then you come back in with your final brief. And I've been with the association for 22 years. I haven't been involved with litigation for that long, but I have a pretty rich history in this. And I will say from my perspective, you know, hindsight's 2020, and a lot of times you work on things with like, oh, I, I really wish we had done this or that. When I look back on the work that MLA's done in this case and everything we filed, I am so proud of what we've done. We went out and got the best legal team and the work that we've done on behalf of the industry is top notch. And I feel like we have covered everything that needs to be covered. I think we presented a case that will be very compelling for the judge. And we're really anxious now for him to rule on that. Our ultimate wish, and it, it, it was our wish from the start, is that we wanted the environmental case and the MLA case to be consolidated. So either into one or at a minimum to move through the court simultaneously. So they were both being briefed at the same time. The judge denied that request to us early on, but we did push for a very aggressive briefing schedule in the MLA case so that we were in lockstep with the environmental case going through. So we've been about a month and a half behind them. So now both have fully filed everything. We have this ruling in the environmental case, and we're going to continue through our interface with the court to tell the judge it's really in the best interest of the right whale of the fishing industry, of the federal agency to have a decision in both of these cases so that together with all of the concerns from both sides laid out, National Marine Fisheries Service can go back and fix this. If he were to send the biological opinion and the final rule back to National Marine Fisheries Service only based on the concerns from the environmental community, then they're gonna have to completely redo it again. <laughs> when the MLA case ruling comes out. So that's a question that's not answered at this point, whether or not the judge will make a ruling in the MLA case and they could potentially go back together. But that's something that we continue to advocate for in our work. And based on some of the, the things that were included in the decision in the ENGO case, it's clear that he's aware of MLA's arguments. He certainly referenced them. So we're going to, we're going to stay with the glasses half full. And, you know, obviously we will fall in line with whatever the judge decides and continue our work from there. So we're hoping this summer though, for our case as well. So let's follow that train though. So we've got three lawsuits that are, you know, bouncing around right now. If they find in favor of MLA, is there another lawsuit, right? If they find in favor of the NGOs, is there another lawsuit? Like, is, is there an actual finish line that we think everybody can be happy with and we can find more stability in our, our world again? Or is this going to be a battle that we're going to have to be engaged in for the rest of your, my career in fisheries? <laughs> yeah, I mean... I always try to be optimistic. You know, the one common ground that the fishing industry and the environmental community have is that we both want to be basing these decisions on the best available data. We might not agree about exactly what that is, um, but we want to see the federal government do a better job. We want to use the best information available to us. And 
I think that that's a real strength that we have to try to resolve some of these if some of MLA's complaints are actually something that the judge agrees with. It gives us a way to move forward. Is there potential that, you know, we get some wins and they appeal or they get some wins and we appeal? I mean, absolutely. But from our perspective, you know, we really want to see what the judge decides in the MLA case, kind of holistically look at what this means. You know, you have to you have to realize that every step you take in the court is extremely expensive. And we're relying on the generosity of, you know, thousands of lobstermen at this point, you know, our, our lobster dealers, our lobster processors, so many of the businesses in Maine that rely on the fishing industry. And, you know, <laughs> I look at those checks one check at a time. If somebody's sending me a thousand dollars, I'm like, you know, how many hours of my legal team's time is this? They, they go very, very fast. So we're trying to be as prudent as we can be, and we are committed and have told the industry that we're not going to back down because of costs. We're always going to make the best decisions on behalf of the industry and take the leap of faith that people will continue to stand up and help us fund this. So I, you know, I really don't know. I'm sure over time it's going to play out, but we, we're, we're nearing the end. You know, in the past, we didn't have these very, very rigid quantitative goalposts. You know, we know now where we're immediately going to be needing to get to a 90% risk reduction, just like your fishermen are, are dealing with. It's a very high bar, but it's something that we understand. It's something that we're working with our fishermen to figure out how to solve. If we can improve the data behind that or improve how the federal agency is using the data behind that, I think we can find our way through. But there, there are just so many unanswered questions at this point that, yeah. Take it one day at a time and and we'll be prepared to make the best move at every stage of the game as as these decision points come in. So we start looking a little bit closer to home. Fishermen are trying to figure out business plans, life plans, future for their families, for their kids. How are you counseling them in terms of what they need to be thinking about and considering and looking at when they're thinking about buying that new boat or, you know, telling their kid to, to, you know, invest in, in the fishing industry or, you know, get a diversity of skills. How, how is MLA talking about, about both the opportunity and the risks that's encompassed in all of this uncertainty right now? Yeah, I honestly, it's just become the hardest part of my job. I mean, dealing with the federal government and the ENGOs and all of that, you would think like, what a pain. But getting calls from fishermen who are so anxious and so afraid about the future for themselves, for their families, people who call and tell me, you know, I had to tell my grandson, I I don't think that there's a future in this fishery for you. It, it, it's heart-wrenching. And as you recognize as small businessmen, I mean, you just don't know what's coming next. You just know you have to do a lot, but you don't know what that is. And you don't know if your individual fishing model is, is going to allow you to survive that. So I just try to be honest with people. You know, I, I talk about what I know, which is we've, we've done a 60% risk reduction. We know we have added more traps to every trawl. We've weakened the rope that we have. We've lost access to a thousand square miles of the ocean, you know, all very difficult things. We know that our fleet cannot take more traps on a trawl. We've, we've basically maxed out the size of our boats. And to get to 90%, we have to take rope out of the water. So I try to put it back on fishermen. You know, if you did, you know, max out this weak rope, closure, all of these things, and it got you to 60%, what do you think you'll need to do? to get more credit. So to take rope out of the water, you know, you could have trap limits. They would be very, very significant. And I'm honest with fishermen about that. 
It's not a one-to-one. -one. If you take half the traps out of the water, you're not going to take half of the rope out of the water. So they would be looking at well under 400 traps. If that were the case, certainly people should be contemplating loss of fishing bottom. Places that have historically had aggregations of whales would be vulnerable. We've been pushing very, very hard on the federal agency to be using the latest data, the last five years of data, because the patterns and the distribution of whales has, have shifted significantly. And we don't want to be in a situation where we're losing fishing bottom and the whales are gone. But people do need to be thinking about that. There's been, you know, rumors of potentially the LMA1 closure could be extended in time. So that group of fishermen could lose more time. Our fishermen are learning about weak links and weak rope right now. Obviously, that's a gear loss issue and a safety issue. Maybe there's potential to have weaker lines or a fully weak line and a half weak line. You know, they're, they're difficult to answer, but fishermen need to be thinking about if we got this far doing all of these things to 60% and now we need to get to 90%, what's left? And it's all of the really, really hard stuff that is going to fundamentally impact their business models. So if you want to buy a new boat, you need to ask yourself, could you realistically do that with 200 traps or 300 traps? Could you realistically do that if the LMA1 closure lasted longer? Could you realistically do that if another area that you rely on in the winter is potentially closed to fishing? You know, we can't be specific because we don't know, but those are the very hard questions that fishermen need to be asking. And there is, there's no lawsuit, there's no magic wand that any of us have that can make the fact that right whales are declining in numbers. And despite our stellar track record of, you know, zero entanglement since 2004 and no known right whale deaths, we have gear in the water. And that means we are we're in the middle of this, like it or not. So I think honesty is the best policy because fishermen are adaptable, but they need time to wrap their head around it. And when those conversations happen, I don't want them to be coming in and getting blindsided about the severity of what might come next. I want them to come in with a lot of thoughtful response and understanding you know, what's going to put them out of business because we need to know that when we go to the management table, where those lines are, where Maybe it's a certain vessel length size that's going to fall out or, you know, people who fish alone or, you know, different attributes that make one lobster boat successful in this scenario and another lobster boat fail in this scenario. We, we need to hear from fishermen what those are because we don't want to end up with a consolidated fleet of all large boats. <laughs> you know, the beauty of the fishery is that we are a very diverse fleet, small, you know, up to those 50 footers. And that's what makes our coastal communities tick. And we, we have to save that. We really do. I appreciate you saying that our organization was founded by groundfish fishermen and we went through consolidation, especially in Maine over the past 20 years. And where we went from 350 groundfish boats and now we've got probably 20 that are actively involved and the ones that make money are the big ones. That's, that's what the fishery looks like. And we don't have the owner operator requirements that are part of culture and the fabric of the lobster fishery. Uh, to that end though, are there going to be conversations about what the fishery looks like or the regulations that currently are on the books and have been on the books for a long time? What other things besides, you know, the lawsuits are potentially on the table for dramatic change for how this fishery operates? It's, it's a really great question. And I don't have a lot of people calling me saying, you know, we need to get rid of owner operator. We're going to consolidate from my vantage point as close to this issue as I can, I can see the writing on the wall. 
And from MLA's perspective, from a lot of people's perspective, the owner operator is kind of the holy grail of the lobster fishery. It's what allows us to have small boats to big boats. It keeps that diversity. It keeps the kids coming in. It keeps the, the elderly fishermen going. You know, it just, it really works. It's, it's not a traditional efficient economic model, but when you're in a rural community like me, where you're, you know, 20 minutes down to the peninsula to get home and then a ferry out to the island, a traditional economic model is not going to work for us. So I have a very large personal fear that our owner operator model is very much at risk, particularly as we start to talk about ropeless fishing, big use of technology, very, very expensive fixes, things that will require larger boats, more crew, and just very, very large investments to keep going. I think the important thing is that the fishermen are able to decide what's most important so that we can preserve the values that make this heritage something that everybody in Maine, even people who have nothing to do with the lobster industry, proud of this state. And to that end, we did work through the delegation and, and your organization was part of that effort where we, we said, you know what, the fishing industry collectively is facing huge pressure from these whale rules. And a lot of people don't really understand the law. They don't understand how big this is. They don't understand how little wiggle room we have to really work with our fleet. We need to get out there and be talking to people and help them understand what's going on so they can think about their business. So we can figure out what are the values? What are the things about the lobster industry that we want to hold on to till the death? And where are the places that we have room for adaptation? Because we do need to land a lot of lobster and keep the supply chain going and keep our coastal communities going. So you know, we're creatures of habit. It is a difficult exercise where we collectively need to step out of our comfort zones. But when your constituency is over 4,500 people across 3,500 miles of coast, reality is that a lot of people haven't got the memo and they're going to be shocked when they hear about this. So that funding is making its way through. I'm hoping potentially by the fall, we'll start to see some more boots on the ground, being able to get out more into the communities really raising awareness with lobstermen so that we can plug in, you know, not just the, 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 the preaching to the choir guys who show up to every meeting, but kind of get down deeper and really, really understand how do we keep our fleet and our communities alive through these whale rules? Because I do view this as an existential threat to our fishery because our economic model does not mesh with the types of things they're asking us to do. And I know a lot of guys will say that will never happen to the lobster industry. But like you said, look at the groundfish industry. In 1980, would anybody have predicted that groundfish would be there and lobster would be here? Look at the shrimp fishery. I mean, fisheries are erased. Fishermen are, are hurt significantly, our communities, but other people seem not to care. You know, they move on. So we have to go in wide, eyes wide open. I don't think anybody would ever really eliminate the lobster fishery. But intellectually, I have to say, yeah. Nobody would have ever eliminated the shrimp fishery and look at what's look at what's happened. So we really need to stay vigilant and we need our fishermen to have information and we need to be honest with them and we need to push them to think outside their comfort zone because if they don't, they will not make it through this. 
Patrice, on that somber note, <laughs> thank you very much for your time and all the energy that you, the Maine Lobstermen's Association, and your legal team is is putting into this. You've got fantastic board members that are spending a lot of time and energy, fishermen that are taking time out of their working lives to engage in this. And I just want you to know that we really appreciate it. And I am really thankful that you've been able to break down this very complicated subject for us so that we can try and get some of the that out into the world a little bit more and and share and, and bring people together around this. So thank you, Patrice. You're welcome. And, and I'll be fired from my job if I don't say. For more information, go to savemainlobstermen.org. You can support our campaign there and find out more about the work that we're doing. And we'll put some links up on our blog so that anybody can go and check it out and see where to go and what they can do to help. So thank you, Patrice. Awesome. Thanks so much, Ben. Maine Coast Doc Talk is a production of the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association, an industry-based nonprofit that identifies and fosters ways to restore the fisheries of the Gulf of Maine and sustain Maine's fishing communities for future generations. For more information about our work, to make a donation, or to listen to previous episodes of Doc Talk, you can visit our website, maincoastfishermen.org.